0: This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Foundation, secondmissionfoundation, all one word, .org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. By the time you're listening to this episode, um, it will have been two weeks or so since we recorded this episode because we were stockpiling some episodes for the holidays. And um, I guess it's good news to say that some relatively positive events have transpired, Since this episode was recorded, uh, the prisoner exchange between Hamas and the Israeli government has taken place, and there's a a ceasefire going on, and, um, uh, you know, um, that has its upsides. Um, As we will talk about in this week's episode, there are an awful lot of downsides to a potential ceasefire, and... uh, There's almost no bloodless outcome that I can see to the Israel-Palestine situation. Um, I am by no means an expert in this situation. And uh, Charlie Faint does not consider himself one either. That said, Charlie has a lot more experience uh, with Israel and Palestine than most. Um, He has been there... (sighs) repeatedly, uh, every year for the past, whatever it's been, mo- most of the past decade, <clears throat> as part of the um, uh, a joint venture between Yale and West Point, where students would go travel um, to Israel and, uh, and parts of Palestine, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, anyway, um, so he's been there repeatedly, as you'll also hear uh, in this interview, um, Charlie was deployed. Um, to Egypt uh, in the late '90s, and spent some time there, uh, crossing into Israel, and you know becoming acquainted with the area. So, um, couldn't have thought of a better person to sit down and talk about the Israel-Palestine situation. <clears throat> There's a lot of ground that we cover in this episode. There's a lot of subject matter. Um, that we have to kind of build up, and uh, because it's Charlie and we know each other well enough, we're able to keep it a little light uh, and frothy up top, but, you know, we do get into some of the meat of the Israel-Palestine issue, and um, yeah, I'm amazed it is as controversial nowadays as it is, um, and we'll talk about why that is also, and some of the, yeah, some of the I hate to say it, I hate to sound like this guy, but some of the 2023 nuances, <laughs> uh, backward steps in the name of progress, um, I guess that we see in the country when it comes to anti-Semitism, uh, where this country stands on the Israel-Palestine issue, etc. Okay, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is a very special issue-focused episode of profiles in havoc charlie welcome back to the show
1: hey thanks chris and it's a pleasure to be back here in the parlor i love what you've done with this place you and your team here at vet (laughs) rep Really made this place look great. I understand that, that we're coming to the last show of your season too.
0: Last show of the season, and but we organized it really to facilitate podcasts that we wanted to do here. That's really how we designed <laughs> the whole thing. So it's finally meeting its purpose.
1: Well, the the acoustics in here are great, and I know the audience can't see this, but this is a lovely setup, and I can't it's wait to see what setup. you do with it. Yeah,
0: I know it's going to be it's going to be bittersweet to leave it. I mean, it's a good problem to have, but it's definitely uh, and it's done well by us, and we'll miss it. And we got to tear down all the wallpaper too. Um, but anyway, yeah, well, I'm glad we could do this. And it does work great for podcasting, yeah. right? This is our second podcast that we've done yes, in this space. that's right. right. Um, all right, let's get to it. So Israel, everything going really cool there? No problems? Yeah, all no issues. There are never any right.
1: issues. Israel, Palestine, everything's fine.
0: Bitchin', awesome. Yep. Episode's over. Best interview <laughs> I've ever done. Uh, so l- let's talk first. I mean, I, I know I'm going to say something about this in the intro, um, about your bona fides going yeah. to Israel yeah. and Palestine, yeah. for that matter, right? Yeah. For how many
1: years now? How many years has so, been? Th- so the organization that we're affiliated with, a Peace and Dialogue Leadership Initiative, we, it's it's in its tenth year mm. now. Obviously, during COVID, we weren't going to Israel or Palestine, okay. et cetera. So we we've done the trip eight times. Okay. And when I was a, a young second lieutenant in the First Airborne Division. Mm. We spent six months in Egypt as part of the multinational force observers peacekeeping mission, and part of that we, we could go we could basically traverse the Israel Egypt border at will. And we were there in 1998 when Egypt and Israel and everyone else kind of getting along really well. So we got we got to go in there no drama. Spent some time in Israel. I, I guess I did two trips then, and you know eight, 10, 12 more since.
0: At that point, when you first went there, I mean, obviously you thought that was as close as you were going to get to a combat deployment, right? That <laughs> I absolutely was it. did. I was like, yeah. man, I'm in the shit here. Look Dude, at this. We,
1: we, even got, we even got some combat zone tax exclusion because the Red Sea was, was still a war zone, technically. So when, when our duties took us from in. From what? I, from like the Gulf the War. Of I don't Gulf? know. It's wow. like, Jesus. I don't know. I didn't ask questions. I was just no, cashed no, a no. check. Did yeah. you get your combat patch? No, I didn't. So, oh, so and back bastards. then I was in the infantry. So yeah. I guess I guess technically by a loophole, we could have gotten a combat patch and a, like a CIB out of it. But I think with with the uh, CIB, it requires like 30 days. But also,
0: you have to also get
1: shot at. No, you guys no, no, get no shot that's, at? that's a myth, man. If you look at the reg for, for what the, the CIB is, it's actually harder to get a CAB than a CIB. CAB didn't exist back then.
0: You can get a CIB just for being an infantry unit in a combat zone.
1: Infantry, infantry eighteen series, or in one of those positions. Right, right, right. So if you're like, if you're like, like I was, but all you have to
0: be is in the combat zone. Right.
1: It's a thirty day thing. You don't have to get shot at. Now, other units can interpret it differently, but if you look up the straight reg, especially back in the in the nineties, it was very different. So we wouldn't qualify for the CIB unless we were like stationed in the Red Sea for thirty straight days. But I guess if someone wanted to be very generous, we could have gotten a combat patch out of it. But we're in the hunter first. We're not gonna do that. If you wanna you wanna get a combat patch out of the hunter first, you actually gotta go to war.
0: I guess you could have gotten a boots on ground memo from the embassy though, or something. <laughs> so there's gotta be some way to get that well, done. There's a tiny wow. little
1: there's a tiny little island. I don't if it has a name, I don't remember what it was, but one of my company's outpost was on this island so you had to either take the the uh we, we went out there the the italian navy took us out but most folks got there via helicopter by a huey and that was in the middle of the of the red of the red sea wow. so if you were there or if you took <laughs> if you traversed it we got i got like two months tax tax free for that and of course you might remember that back in the day if you got one day out of the month you got the whole month oh, yeah. Tax free
0: yeah yeah, yeah. oh sure. that's a great deal That's incredible! Wow. I guess since you had to go over water, you also got your scuba badge, right? (laughs) I'm so blown away by that that that's all you need for the CIB. So, so not to not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I mean, we're dealing with havoc, listeners. People love this shit, right? You could get a CIB and not be a combat veteran.
1: Uh, you you could like if if we define combat veteran like uh, the exchange of gunfire. Which is generally
0: how we define... uh, How do you define combat veteran? So
1: I don't think it is defined. It's kind of like the definition of ranger in the Army. We all, uh, like you and I, assume that people that are in the ranger regiment are rangers, but a guy with a ranger tab can say, I'm a ranger, and he's right. So I think... I don't know that there's a... If you look in um, JP1-02, the the dictionary of, of, of joint terms, I don't know that combat is defined or combat veteran is defined. So someone like me... I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan seven times. I've never fired my weapon in combat. I got shot at enough to get a CAB. I don't consider myself a combat veteran. I consider myself a war veteran.
0: Who does that's right? Is that a VA definition? Where do you start getting benefits as a combat veteran? There's there's some there's some bar that you have to clear with somebody. Right? Yeah,
1: I don't know. I, I guarantee you, someone listening to the show right now knows the. Yeah, answer somebody's that. shouting at it. Yeah, us. they're screaming right, at the radio right. right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah someone's yeah. saying, "Shut up, Pogue. That's not what it takes <laughs> for CIB." But I know I'm correct. So yeah, so wow. I don't know. I don't know what the definition is. I do know, and and you and I have talked about this also. Some people say that someone's not a veteran if they haven't been to combat. That's or true war, too, which is also wrong. That's true. And you can easily look that up on the VA site. You just have to serve honorably.
0: Well, also, I think that arg- argument's been mitigated because of the suicide rate where people go, hey, veteran suicide, and you're talking about guys from the 90s. Right. And it's like, okay, it helps, and I'm putting air quotes here, helps the numbers you know, to justify veteran suicide rates. So, yes, we'll consider them veterans for that purpose. Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? Because otherwise, you got I mean, I'm not saying there's not adequate, again, air quotes, suicide veteran just from the GWAT era. Right. But – I, I, you know, when you hear the anecdotal stories, you know, these guys in the nineties and all that, right. it's like, Oh, that's numbers. You're not getting to 44 a day just on the G I would no, think. No, absolutely not. So, you know, anyway.
1: Well, yeah, that, that is, that is interesting. And I've had this discussion many times with folks that, that say that other people aren't veterans they are to me, A right. vet's a vet. If right. you served honorably, I don't care how long it was. Even if you didn't make it out of basic training, thanks for trying. I appreciate it. Thank you for your service. You're
0: somebody, and I, I know we're digressing from the issue at hand, but since we established that there's absolutely zero problems going on in Israel and Palestine, I feel very comfortable going down this <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, as somebody, I mean, since I started writing at Havoc, yeah. you always held a standard. Like yeah. I remember when we talked about, I mean, I'll say his name because just because- I don't think it's a trade secret. Uh, You are not the leading indicator on this, but when Eric Haney's book came out, and you were like, "Yep, I don't like people that betray their oaths." Like you always know the book answer for like the right way to conduct yourself. So I'm going to ask you in that context: What do you consider a combat veteran?
1: So to me, a combat veteran is someone who has has exchanged fire with the enemy.
0: Okay, that's so. So like, like like I mentioned, I consider myself a
1: war veteran.
0: Right. Right. I don't
1: consider myself a combat veteran. I yep. never fired. I yep. fired my weapons at paper targets when I got down range to make sure it was zeroed.
0: But none of them ever turned into suicide bombers. No. And We have <laughs> you to thank for that. So let's not sell yourself too short.
1: Yeah. It was always my job to help the shooters find the bad guys. Of course. If, of course. If the Intel guy in the national level soft unit is shooting people, it's probably a bad day for everyone. Right. Right. Yeah. Well,
0: that's where the bullet and the flagpole comes in. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're that guy round, at that point. In the yeah. truck and the flagpole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think I, I wonder how many people everybody can scream at their iPhones at all at the same time now and answer us like how many people would agree with that definition or see it differently. But I feel like that's fair. And I feel like there is a bashfulness, not necessarily deserved bashfulness on the part of some people with cabs. Right. Like, like when you go, Oh yeah, you got your cab. Oh it's like a guy popped around off of my right. unit or something like that. And I'm like like I get it, like yeah you know, hey i'd I'd take a cab for that, like right. whatever, who right. cares like what i I know there was a there was a story. I was not witness to this, so I have to call it a story, but I, I did hear of a sergeant major at Bagram who was running around after a C-Ram shot down something, and there was shrapnel and debris falling, and he ran all around the yard going. Did you get hit at all? Did you get hit at all? Hey, hey, cabs, cabs, cabs! It all came down, and it was because he hadn't got his cab yet, and so oh, he got his cab. So, oh, so but he that way he looped. He got 16 other co-conspirators in there to also get their cabs, so that way he wasn't the asshole trying to lobby for a cab, but for himself. Well,
1: anytime you incentivize behavior, you're going to get more of it. If you give, <laughs> if you give the, if you give. Military members, the opportunity to get something shiny, they'll fall right. over themselves to get it.
0: A hundred percent.
1: Just like I was talking with with my wife, Lilla, who, as you know, is also a vet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we were talking about Pathfinder School. Yeah. I was, I was proud of my Pathfinder badge, but there's a reason why we called it Badge Finder School. The only reason uh, I went yeah. was because it had a fancy badge. Now I went the the 160th sent me. The Intel guy for the 160th is not going to be setting up farps or right. calling. We have rangers right. for that. We have right. we have all kind of other folks. But they sent me, I went because it's a cool badge. Why wouldn't
0: you? And you had to, what's the big, the big grind with it's the memorization, right? That big thing you have Dude, to memorize. Dude, the whole thing
1: was a big grind. Lila, if Lola hasn't told you the story, you should ask her about it because I was calling her almost on the daily telling her that I'm failing out. I'm coming home because I grossly underestimated how difficult Pathfinder was and the amount of rote memorization yeah, that was yeah. required for it. And Chris, they made me do math. You know, I don't uh, do math. No, what the hell? No,
0: no. Boo. Yeah. I'm not a fan. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. Well, I know I was so bummed. See, this is, this is the Charlie faint officer special that you got to go to Pathfinder. Yeah. I know we were, I was trying to go to Pathfinder. I like wanted that shiny badge so bad. Absolutely. And they were like, no, you're not supply. Like there's some, su- our supply guy could go. Right. Nope. You can't go. You're not supply. I was like, son of
1: a bitch. Anyway. Well, the the only reason I got to go is because the second battalion, which is the battalion I was in, got two slots every class. I don't remember sure, what it was. Sure. And they're like, who do we have that's that's smart enough to pass? Send the S2. Now it turns out they were almost wrong <laughs> about that. But that but I appreciate that because in in when I was in fifth group, which was the unit I was in yeah. right before that, fifth special forces group for the listening audience. I was in a conversation at, the, at at one of our meetings, and I remember our group S two was talking with the the S three about this Pathfinder training that's coming up for the Intel people. And I remember someone got so upset that that Intel folks are getting to do Pathfinder, not because. Um, some SF guy needed to do it, but because they didn't want us to have it, yeah. And the S two was like, I'm talking yeah. about Pathfinder database training. There's a there's the Intel database called Pathfinder, but it was a really eye opening moment for me that yeah. these guys yeah. didn't. We weren't taking from SF, but they didn't want us to have it because we're just red headed support pokes, and that was a real eye opener. Big difference between fifth group and 160th was like we got slots. Who can pass? We don't care that this guy's not a pilot. Send him. Let him go to pathfinder school so that's how i got to go
0: no listen that boy that's a whole another rabbit hole we could go down with that that yeah very interesting i'm tempted to go down it but i won't because (laughs) oh what the the hell we should probably talk about we should probably talk about israel palestine so um yeah okay so your first exposure to that conflict in 98 yeah right what did you see there? What was the dynamic? So
1: let's let's start from the very beginning, crossing in from Egypt okay. into Israel. So on the Egyptian side, it's desert, it's trash. Mm. The barbed wire's got what we call the Egyptian tumbleweeds, which are which are garbage bags that are just tossed up into yep. it. Yeah. It's the the flies are everywhere. There's no air conditioning. And literally, Chris, on the other side of the border, you've got green grass all the way up to the fence. You got flowers, there's sprinklers, and all of the gate guards. On the Israeli side were women. We called them the border betties. They were all women. So why, for propaganda purposes, and also because the that's what they had the women doing for for admin work in the army. So when we were in process, like the guys doing security are dudes.
0: Oh, okay, All, right. all
1: the the people that we're dealing with are gotcha. all young Israeli women. And, and, and when you part, say propaganda purposes, yeah, because if you're if you're crossing the border at this major border crossing, and you cross from Egypt, which is a literal desert with right. guys that are sweaty and and smelly, as we all would be because there's no air conditioning, right? right. And you cross into there, the land of milk and honey and young women. Oh, I it's see. it's a huge it's a huge change to go back and forth between. Well, that's them. what happens. When you're a colonizing oppressor. You <laughs> get all the grass and all the women. That makes sense. I so, suppose.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you, so you come across and. Um, was what was the reception like? I mean, you were a multinational force; they knew that. Yeah, so it wasn't a big surprise. No, and and
1: the border crossing that we went into is the one that you, when you go from the Sinai Peninsula and you're going to a lot, which is the big party town in in south South Israel, this is one everybody uses. Is and that again, the one?
0: Is that the one that got hit?
1: in the kidnappings? No, 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 this so, okay. is very, we'll talk about those in a okay. minute. Uh, right. The water the, the crossing you're talking about a way up by the Gaza Strip. So this is way down Southern. Got southern, you. Okay. All right. Southern Israel and the Egyptians and the Israelis at this point, 98, they just wanted to make money. No one wanted to fight. So it was a great time to be a peacekeeper. Right. So was
0: there commerce? Were, were, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. were Egyptians businessmen that would go in to sell goods? Oh yeah, and come
1: absolutely. And where okay. we were down in Sharm el-Sheikh is a huge tourist place. Okay. And also this the site because there's Americans there, it's secure, so that that attracts all kind of like tourists and stuff like that. Okay. So Sharm el Sheikh, Nama Bay, where we are. Um, Sharm el Sheikh
0: is Egypt or Israel? Sharm
1: el Sheikh is Egypt Sinai Peninsula, kind of on the okay. center south of the the mm-hmm. uh, the east coast of the Sinai Peninsula. Okay. So you'd have to go up the Sinai Peninsula to get to a lot in in Israel. Okay. And a lot is on the tiny strip of land between Egypt and Jordan. So that tiny strip of land is is Israel, and that's where a lot is. So we went to a lot, which is a huge party place. We went uh, to Caesarea. I remember seeing the, mm. the Roman ruins and aqueducts, which are so impressive. And then we went up to the Golan Heights. We set foot in Syria. There's there was one place at the time where if you like cross the stream, you're technically in Syria. So we went over there, was like you know, took a photo, came back.
0: Combat badge. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: <laughs> no combat patch for that either. But uh, later on, we got we had plenty of time uh-huh. to earn those. Uh-huh. And then we spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. And it was really interesting. Back in 98, the Waqf, which is the, the Jordanian um, Muslims that control the Temple Mount, that yes. administer it, that administer the religious aspects of it, uh, they weren't as restrictive. So we actually got to go into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the big mosque up there, and the Dome of the Rock Shrine. So people get those two things confused. There's a mosque up there, but there's also the shrine. So the big gold dome—that's that's the shrine. That's the dome of the and rock. And the
0: shrine is Christian? No, or no, no, what, no, Jewish? no, no,
1: no. No, it's no, it's it's Muslim. It's Muslim. The, it's Muslim. the golden dome Muslim. is Muslim. Okay. Now at one point it probably was Jewish because uh, some people think that's where the original, um, um, the original uh, first temple was. Oh wow. Okay. And and, the, and this, the thinking is it got destroyed so many times. The, the uh, Muslims on um, one of their times occupying it, it built this beautiful Dome of the Rock. Now, nowadays, if you're not Muslim, you're not allowed in. So you have to take a, like a religious test to get in. But when we went...
0: And the Waf administered
1: the test. The Waf administered. And they're actually pretty restrictive on it. Yeah. Um. Okay. And uh, I anybody, I think at the time they were letting anybody in, certainly we didn't have some special dispensation, but we got to go in regardless. And in Chris, it was beautiful. The the, the sure, Dome of the Rock sure. was amazing. The al aqsa Mosque was interesting also because they have display cases with all the stuff that the Israelis had shot at the protesters over the years. So when you go into this mosque to pray, one of the first things you wow. see on the left and right are these dis- display cases with like tear gas and bullets and things from the martyrs and stuff like that. So
0: not to get ahead of ourselves, but almost... You're at the most beautiful, one of the holiest sites. And there's an attempt to radicalize, propagandize from the that moment was, you walk That was what
1: I thought even back in 1998. It's like, yeah. I was, you know, I was, I was raised Catholic. I was just kind of imagining going to mass and seeing bullet casings, shell casings, bloody right. rags or right. know, whatever I right. don't remember it was 98. Um, and these days we're not even allowed to go in, which is a shame because that is such a a beautiful uh, representation of Islam. To see those things, sure. to see their artwork and everything like that, but but we're not allowed in, unfortunately.
0: What did you think of the Were they
1: so? I didn't really, I didn't really deal with them. Okay. So they're they're religious enforcers. So the the Israelis control security up there. So the guards are security. A lot of them are Druze or, or Arab Israelis. So the armed people that are up there, uh, certainly the police. I don't know if anyone from the walk is armed. I don't know. But security is controlled by the Israelis. Religious enforcement is done by the walk. So gotcha. if a woman goes up there and she's showing from shoulder or if her sleeves aren't long enough or whatever, then they get stopped and they have things for people to wear. Also, you're not allowed to unveil um, flags or signs or banners up there. So they help enforce that. Okay. And then they control who goes into or out of the, the shrine in the mosque.
0: Now um, I'm asking asking for a friend, um, not really. But I, I, it's funny. I I like to think that I'm very world worldly wise on stuff, but I've kind of astutely avoided knowing that much about Israel and Palestine. Mm. So I'm going to ask a lot of dumb questions. No, right. I'm sure people, hopefully, are as dumb as me and would ask also or would want answered. <clears throat> First off. When you say that there are Druze or Arab Israelis, therefore, to my mind, I'm thinking of the Druze in Lebanon, they're Christian, right? So these are Christian Israelis. Well, okay.
1: So, I'm sorry, let me back up. Druze is its own religion. Right. So it's an offshoot of Islam.
0: Oh, it is an offshoot? No, I think you're thinking
1: about the Maronite Christians, I think.
0: I probably am. I'm probably getting it all confused. Maybe that's right. Because I just remember in Beirut, reading about Beirut and what was going on up there, all the different tribes and sects and gangs that were up right. there fighting in the early eighties. Right. And I probably conflated the Druze with the Maronite Christians. Well, it, up it's there. easy to
1: confuse because the way the Druze continue to exist is their their religious identity and the way they do politics is whoever's in charge, we're loyal to them.
0: So the Druze So it's totally personality based.
1: It's 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 government based. So the Druze in Israel are loyal to Israel. The Druze in Lebanon are loyal to Lebanon. Oh, now there, of course there is a lot seen. of loyalty between. I mean, a, the Druze and different sects and things like that. But one of the reasons that the Druze a, join the army, um, and the Arab Israelis don't have to, right? The so the the Israelis said, "Hey, if you're Arab Israeli, you don't have to join the army, and if you're Druze, you don't have to join the army." For a couple of reasons, they don't want to put people in a bad spot, and they also don't want a fifth column inside their army. Sure, but. A number of Arab Israelis do join the army, and the Druze leaders came to Israel and said, no, 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 we want our young men to go into your army because we're loyal to Israel.
0: So this is uh, very distinct from all the Jewish Hamas fighters, right? And I'm joking when oh. I say that. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, like, like I mean, so I mean, one of the first distinctions, as I say, I'm, I'm, I feel undereducated on the Israel-Palestine yeah. conflict, but I think one of the things that immediately leaps out to my layman mind is first off, <sighs> the um, that you don't hear that much about the Jewish religious enforcers surrounding that synagogue in Gaza, sure, because that doesn't exist, and right. you don't hear about the Jewish. Offshoots right. working for Hamas, right? Like, so it's kind of like diversity cuts one way, and there's kind of a, an open society that, that it takes in all comers on one side, but not so much on the other side. Well, Chris, is that's, that's that a, that's unfair? A,
1: that's a fantastic observation, and i i I think this is a good time for me to to explain to the audience something you and I have talked about before, which is. The uh, the horseshoe theory of politics. Right. So there are absolutely extremist Jews, just like there are extremist Christians, there's like extreme Hindus, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that I observed going back and forth to to Israel and and Palestine, some some of it because I was in the DoD and there's restrictions on where we can go. Obviously, I've never been to Gaza, but going into to dealing with the the Palestinians. Arab Israelis, Jews, everybody else. It, it really, we heard, we had a meeting with uh, an extremist Jewish settler who was in the West Bank in one of the, one of those settlements that, that the world considers illegal. Yeah. And he had one very specific worldview. And then we talked to a Palestinian but a very specific worldview, and and I think most people consider each one of these people we talked to rather extreme for their perspective. Mm-hmm. And I I was blown away by how much they sounded alike. Sure, sure. And in the way they dressed, the way their views on women, mm-hmm. uh, the way they they looked, what they ate, and their extremist views. So it, it occurred to me is like, hey, these guys are. These guys are way closer to us, to each other, than they really are to people in the middle. And I thought I had uncovered this like profound international right. relations thing, only right. to find out that someone had discovered it centuries sure. ago and named it the horseshoe theory of politics. So you you absolutely do have extremist Jews. There are places in in Jerusalem where we were encouraged not to go to for our morning, morning runs because they were very conservative Jews and they wouldn't appreciate um, our young women in, in mm, West sure. Point running right. through and shorts and stuff like that. Right. So I, I don't want to what both sides, uh, this thing, because I do think Hamas is, is the the bad party in all of this, but I just want to make it clear to our audience that, that there are, there are some grievances on both sides and there are extremists on both sides.
0: And, and that makes total sense. I think the word that I've, the phrase that I've heard recently and mostly for domestic stuff in the U S is a uh, nut picking. Like you can always find nuts. Like let's stipulate there's a fringe on both sides. Absolutely. Um, But again, to my layman outlook, it does seem like um, this is this is how I have always conceived the Israel Palestine thing, and I kind of left my knowledge base at this. That if left to their own devices, Israel would not be seeking war with any of its neighbors. Yeah. Whereas when left to its own devices. Hamas, whose charter calls for the death of Jews, who has Saturday morning cartoons teaching kids how to kill Jews, is absolutely seeking the death of Jews. Not Israelis alone, Jews. That they are very much an extension of everything that people would identify with Hitler and with Nazi ideology when it comes to that. So I'm right in just that kind of simple binary as a good framework to understanding the problem set that we're dealing with in that region.
1: Absolutely right. And I like the way you phrase that left to their own devices, because as, as you and I know, because you've been to many places that I've been around the world left to their own devices. Most, most of the time people will find a way to get along that happens in our country. It happens all all over the place. Unfortunately, there are plenty of bad actors that won't let people get along. And Hamas is an example of one of them. We've heard many times, and I'm a subscriber of this also, Hamas doesn't represent all the Palestinians. Sure. Okay, First of all, Hamas has power in Gaza, Fatah has power in the West Bank. They don't like each other. They regularly try to murder each other. Sure. And we have Palestinians all over the world that are that are great citizens, partners, whatever. So I think that is that is an an important distinction on that, but I think hands down, the world knows certainly now in Hamas's own words in our, their own video what they're about. And that was why it was so hard for me when this happened on uh, on October the 7th because many of the places that got hit and some of the videos that we saw were places that I had visited with this this group I told you about, PDLI, with the Yale students and West Point cadets. We had been there, Chris. I was like, I, I know where that is. Nahal Oz, Starot, uh, the, the Kareem Shalom Crossing, places like that. One of the bases that we had lunch at when we were down in the south uh, – Exploring that area got overrun and destroyed so i don't i don't know um I don't know who got killed on who got injured, but some of the people that we dealt with were probably likely hurt or killed and certainly were affected by this so that that terrorist attack affected me in a way that my trips to Iraq and Afghanistan didn't because I felt a connection to that in a way that i hadn't in in these other places <clears throat>
0: I'm going to throw out some of the standard talking points that, uh, the greatest minds of Instagram have given <laughs> us and, um, and just give me your reaction to them. So first off, um, Israel is the colonist oppressor that has come in and basically was dropped on top of this unified centrally governed Palestine and has since de facto enslaved or established an apartheid state uh for the Palestinians. True or false to what degree
1: and why? It's false. Okay. It's false. And look, there's this is a very complicated situation and we could talk about this for hours. Mm-hmm. And I also want to make clear to the audience, I'm not an expert on this. I, I just, you know, my own experiences, your mileage may vary. But I think if we if we look at the history of the area and who owned what, when, I mean, the Gaza Strip was controlled by Egypt. The West Bank was controlled by Jordan. You you do have the situation where the, uh, the nation of of Israel kept expanding and getting bigger, but I think it's also important to see why that was happening. If you go back to the, 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 uh, the Balfour Declaration and even before that with the historic people in the, in the area being the homeland for the Jews and the Christians for that matter. And over time, you see that, like, hey, we're going to set up the Jewish uh, Jewish state here. Here, they're going to be the boundaries. And there Jews-
0: was no existing state there right, at the right, time,
1: right? Which is important. It, right. it was, you know fallout from the Ottomans uh, and and that that stuff falling apart. And then just, you know, fast forward over time, it's like, hey, this is going to be Jewish state. The Arabs said no. The Arabs tried to destroy Israel. It didn't work. That that seems to be a recurring theme throughout history. And in the meantime, Israel keeps getting bigger. Israel actually gave back the entirety of Sinai to Egypt for peace because, Egypt, because Israel took all of Sinai. And
0: During the Six Day War. Right? Yes. Okay.
1: Or Six Day? Yeah, it had to be Six Day War.
0: And that was in 1967, 66, something mm, like that?
1: We'll have to fact check the dates. Yeah, I'll fact check those dates. Yeah. So, regardless, they, they took it. And then, the, yeah. and then the Egyptians launched the Yom Kippur War, complete surprise, shocked the shit out of the Israelis. Um, the Israelis turned the tide on, but eventually they realized like, A, we can't defend all this territory. B, we don't care about the Sinai Peninsula. We don't, what are we going to do with the Sinai? Yeah, right. So they, they made a deal. It's like, hey, we, we need peace with Egypt, which was the, the the leading Arab partner, and we'll give you back Sinai and everything else. So they made a deal, and, and they've had decent relations ever since. But as part of that deal, they're like, hey, you, you know, you can have Gaza back too. And the Egyptians were like, yeah, you know what? you guys, You guys hold on to that. Why? So it is hard to govern people who want to be free. It's hard to govern people that want to be free. The Palestinians... With a great deal of justification, in my opinion, want their own state. I want the Palestinians to have their own state. I think a two-state solution is is the solution. I I, I wasn't on board with that at first, but over time I, I came to believe that. So people want to be who want to be free are hard to govern. Um, the Egyptian Egyptians had a problem with the Muslim Brotherhood that that continues to this day of which the PLO was an offshoot, et cetera, et cetera. So they didn't want to govern the Gaza Strip because inevitably if they governed Gaza and didn't rule it with an iron hand, which they didn't want to do, their provocations out of Gaza would inevitably lead to war with Israel. So if you if you control a piece of territory, if that's your sovereign territory and, it's, and that territory is being used yeah, to launch attack, you're going to get of invaded. Of course. So that's, that's why they did that, in my opinion.
0: So... Let's maybe, so let me let me back up just to make sure my history is correct. 1948, Israel is created. Within, I believe, about a year, they get, received their first onslaught
1: from all the Arab countries surrounding them. Well, I mean, I think war was declared as soon as they declared independence. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. And then it was followed up about 20 years later with the Six-Day War. And then the Yom Kippur war after that. And then we jump fast forward really to the nineties where we had the Antifada. Yeah.
1: We had a couple of Antifadas in there. A couple of
0: Antifadas. Right. So to me, to my layman mind, the big common denominator is during all of these, Israel was not the aggressor.
1: No, that's not true. Okay. Uh, Tell me. In, in one of their wars, they launched a preemptive strike.
0: Okay. Do you remember which one it was or why?
1: I think it was 1967. Oh, okay. because they're about to get they're about to get wrecked because they're about to. So it was a preemptive right. strike, yeah. Which I think was was smart. Okay. Why sit around waiting for it? You go after right. you go after right. everyone's air force on the ground. So, <clears throat> so aggressor is, is an interesting is an interesting term. I think if we look at who fired the first shot, generally it's not the Israelis. Yeah, but they're not a they're not above that. I think any responsible government, of course. I mean, you and I would launch a preemptive strike. You know about sure. it. yeah.
0: So then, in that case. <clears throat> What was the hmm. if Israel was generally on the receiving end of this, correct my history if I'm wrong, My understanding is that the settlements happened because they needed again preemptively to take land back to ensure that they couldn't that rocket attacks couldn't emanate so close to their borders. Am I wrong in that? So
1: I'm going to give you some personal opinion and, and some facts, all right? Okay. So for example, in the north where they keep biting off more and more of the Golan Heights, absolutely that's strategy.
0: And tell people about that. Golan Heights is going
1: in the north in the northeast corner of of Israel. It's Israel now cuz mm-hmm. they 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 took it where the like the Sea of Galilee is, there's mm-hmm. a there's a there's a bunch of high ground. And Syria typically uses that area to shoot rockets and all kind of crap at Israel. So they're like, you know what? This is ours now. And what's really interesting, Chris, a couple of years ago, we went, we went, we were up there at a there's a typical tourist place that people go in the Golan Heights. And you could see really far into into Syria. Like you can see wow. on a clear day. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the distance is, but it's like forever. Wow. And we were up there and you could see smoke on the horizon. You hear those deep percussions. And one of the students with PDLI asked me, he was like, what's that? I'm like, that's the war. You're looking at the war in Syria. It's happening right there in whatever city that, that is. Now, obviously, we're far enough away. No, nothing's going to catch us. But when you're talking about 105 shells, massive Combat wars. Patch. Say again? Combat patch? No. Yeah, okay. All right. I already had <laughs> ones from three different units by then. I, I wasn't into but it. But all the anymore. cadets
0: got theirs then, right? You could, yeah, right here, right here. I'm looking they at it. I'm Sure, they would have been yeah. thrilled to
1: thrilled to get it. But no, we weren't in any, any danger. But you could you could see it. And, and yeah. being up in that point, the reason I bring up this vignette is because it's very clear when you're physically up there how strategic this area is yeah. for for people. It's key terrain for sure. But other places like um, the settlements that were mentioned in in the the um, West Bank in particular. Or Judea and Samaria is what the Israelis call it. That's a historic name for that land. Is I, um, people say, and I think this is probably on the right track Israel's creating facts on the ground by moving their people in. It's like, well, we can't give this back. We have 20,000 people live in the city. We can't give this back because we have 20,000 people in the city. And it seems pretty obvious that their long game is to take as much of that as they can and make that part of greater Israel uh, for religious purposes, for uh, political purposes and for population purposes
0: and security purposes. Yeah. Mm directly, Right. Okay.
1: But that has its own problems, of course, because we keep saying like you just, you and your audience just heard me say, our audience heard me say (laughs) that I believe in a two state solution. Well, it's hard to create two state solution if one of the states is going to run out of territory. So what are you going to do? Are you going to, you know, only have uh, the Gaza Strip be Palestine? Are you going to split it in two places? I don't know. It's, it's a tough nut to crack.
0: So let's try to crack that nut. As I said, we're, we're going to try to solve the whole problem right here. Charlie faint becomes emperor of <laughs> of of the UN for a day. No, I mean you. If you had the power, yeah, and not the power to wave a magic wand and make it hell happen peacefully. But let's say let's say you're Netanyahu. Yeah, what do you do?
1: So. I'll tell you, I've thought about this a lot. What What would I do if, yeah. I, if I couldn't wave a magic wand and and nobody hates me forever? Right, right, which right. Is, which is not going to happen. So, <laughs> the original two state solution involved a Palestinian state that was in Gaza and in the West Bank. That is, in my opinion, utterly unworkable. Uh, a lot of people might recall that Pakistan was uh, what was Bengal, what is now Bangladesh was was like right. East Pakistan originally. Right. That's not going to work out. Yeah, very few countries can have. Territory that's not contiguous yes. and have it survive. Yes, people's like, well, what about Alaska? Well, we're, we're America. I mean, that's right, that's right. different. Yeah, but if you look at um, uh, other places, it, it, it doesn't work out very well. Yeah. So what I would do, first of all, I would absolutely give the Palestinians their own homeland. I think that's that's one thing. Do you get I, rid of Hamas first? Oh, I mean, I nothing happens without getting rid of Hamas. So just to back up a second.
0: What we're seeing now is a concerted effort from the Israelis to get rid of yeah. it looks like Hamas. Yeah. And they're willing to exert to to risk collateral damage in large numbers to get rid of Hamas, who obviously are using human shields and what right. have you. Is there anything left in Gaza, mm. if you go after Hamas, is mm. it going to be ten people left there? I mean, what uh, is that doable, or is it too difficult to to do the root canal and get rid of Hamas in order to to, to two, have a peaceful Gaza? Two part
1: answer. First yeah. part: I'm waving my magic wand. Hamas is gone.
0: Okay, okay. Hamas right. is gone.
1: We expand the Gaza Strip. We expand it into the Negev Desert. We okay. make the Gaza Strip area bigger. Okay, and that's the Palestinians' homeland. And that becomes the Singapore, the Mediterranean. Uh, the Palestinian population tends to be extremely well-educated. Everybody wants to give Palestine money, including our own government. So we make Gaza Strip bigger. That's Palestine. Anyone who wants to return and the right of return, that, that's very important to Palestinians. They return to that homeland. Israel uh, reabsorbs the, the West Bank. And then that's the end of the problem. So that's that's magic wand solution mm-hmm. without worrying De- about yep. everything else. Now in terms of the collateral damage, I think a, a lot of people need to realize that Hamas needs dead Palestinians more than Israel does. Yeah. That's where they get the sympathy, yeah. that's where the outrage comes from. And like you mentioned, Hamas does things to deliberately Inflict civilian casualties. Yep. They blame their own errant, re- or errant rocket strikes and deaths that they cause on Israel, and they grossly overinflate the casualties. Yeah, and and the rest of the world blindly accepts these casualty tolls that we're getting. Innocent people are getting killed right now in in Palestine, no doubt. In Gaza Strip, they're dying, but. We need to look at at why that's happening, who's really doing it. I think if you want to free Palestine, you start by freeing them from Hamas. Because once you get that done, then I think a lot of other good things can happen. I'm going to ask the unfair question just because it's, it's poised
0: right there. How do you get rid of Hamas in Palestine? How do you actually allow Pil- Palestinians to be free?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, people like to say correctly that that Gaza elected Hamas, that absolutely happened, but it happened like 16 years ago. Right. So and they've they, clung on to power and defied all right. election, all post-elections that were supposed to happen. Right. right exactly yeah. right. Okay. So what might happen here is if they they can't, it's hard to kill an idea. You and I both know that. It's hard to kill an idea. But what you can do is you can create conditions for a better idea to take over. So maybe one thing that happened is, is Hamas isn't wiped off the face of the earth because, I mean, even today, there are people who consider themselves Nazis and want to support Nazi ideology. Mm-hmm. But they don't have their own state anymore. Right. right. So maybe what can happen is is Israel in, in the West or whoever else wants to get on board, like Egypt, would certainly, I think, be happy to have Hamas out of there. Cripple Hamas enough where the Palestinians rise up and say, you know what, we're going to do our own thing. Maybe Fatah comes back from the West Bank. Maybe another party comes in there to, to take over. But as long as Hamas is there poisoning The future generation of Palestinians, I don't think there'll ever be peace. As long as that keeps going on, I don't think Palestine will have its own state, which is, again, what I think we need at the end of the day.
0: So I guess this is the devil's advocate position. It's a position I don't relish taking, but I'll ask. uh, I'm not sure how much I believe in it. I just want to throw it out there. In World War II, it's probably a safe assumption that if we had to keep island hopping across the Pacific, there are many innocent Japanese people that would have died, civilians and all that that would have died. But because we couldn't separate the chaff from the wheat, we couldn't separate the Japanese Red Army from the civilian population, we risked dropping A-bombs to just end the goddamn thing. Yeah. I wonder if there's – first off, I wonder if there's any historical precedent – to separate the chaff from the wheat in such a difficult integrated situation. And I'm very skeptical that there's any other solution than wiping them out. And I don't say that lightly, but I don't know how you separate Hamas from the civilian population. And it doesn't mean you purposely try to inflict collateral damage. You try to do surgery the best you can, but at a certain point, even if we were to wave a magic wand and Hamas is no longer there, Fatah are no angels, right. and there's nothing as you said. There's nothing stopping the idea from resurrecting itself there, um, and is and certainly, I mean, even stable nation states surrounding Israel have inflicted war on Israel and have continued continued to generate radicalization efforts, even in Egypt and and Syria, certainly, and Jordan. I just wonder. If the two-state solution is possible, only because how the fuck do you get the poison out of this bloodstream without just absolute, unilateral, decisive, Armageddon-like action that absolutely Nagasaki's Palestine into submission in a way that that can never crop up again. Now. The victim narrative and the propaganda narrative you could probably never quash as long as the world is willing to indulge that victim right. narrative. But that's probably part two. That's phase two of the operation. I think phase one, I just don't know how you
1: separate that out. Am I crazy? No, no. A lot of people have asked these same questions. So for me, you know, set aside the 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 moral argument, which I think we always have to keep in mind sure. about, about killing people wantonly, Of course. So If Israel were to do that, it would create so much outrage in the Muslim world that in the long run, it would be detrimental to Israel. What I mean by that is Iran is already trying to get everybody fired up to get after Israel. This is the same rationale why they didn't flatten the Temple Mount when they they took over. Like Israel in in 1967 could have flattened the al-Aqsa mosque it could have flattened the dome of the rock trunk. sure why didn't they do that well a couple of reasons first of all it's first of all the, the the very religious Jews think they shouldn't be up there in the first place because you don't know you, you might be standing on holy ground you don't know where the temple was right but the main reason they didn't do it and the and the reason why they returned it to the waqf to let them control it is because of the religious significance and they defeated all these arab armies but if they destroy the third holiest site in Islam, you're gonna get another jihad and they're gonna be super motivated about it. So right now, I think a lot of people are looking at this situation, and certainly um plenty of folks have reason to dislike Hamas. But if they went in if Israel or anybody else went in and just just dresdened or Tokyo yeah. or yeah. Nagasaki, that area, you're gonna get so much more outrage out of yeah. it that many more Jews are going to get killed rather than taking this, the approach that I think the Israelis are taking right now to be a little more surgical and deliberate, even if it risks more lives in the short term for of, of Israelis.
0: So being that public opinion and world opinion is so important yeah. in the risk assessment that Israel has to make. Let's take a look at that. I'm going to recall these numbers from memory because I just read them in the past week and I, hopefully they're, I know they're generally accurate. I, 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 Everyone can feel free to fact check me on the specifics, but I want to say that in the last 10 years, the human human, the UN human rights council, which by the way, now is chaired by Iran. Right. So making a note of that. Totally legit. Yeah, totally legit. But in the last 10 years, when Iran wasn't even in charge of the UN human rights council, um, I want to say that the UN passed resolutions uh, for human rights violations against Uh, Russia, like seven times China, like 10 times, um, you know, different countries like, uh, like that, you know, around that range, Israel, they had 140 resolutions against
1: them. Sounds about right.
0: The world is anti-Semitic, is it not?
1: So Israel is a convenient country for a lot of people to hate. Yeah. And sometimes they don't do themselves a lot of favors, like even right. even they work against U.S. interests with the settlements and everything else. But or Jonathan Pollard, I mean, they spy right. on us and all that. Or, yeah. or I mean, they blew up one of our ships in one of the right. wars, et cetera. They ran over one of our one of our citizens with a bulldozer, et cetera. Right. Et cetera. The list goes on and on. Right. Um, so certainly, I'm not going to portray Israel as completely innocent. I don't think any I don't think anybody is, but they they are very convenient to hate, and there's also a reflection of a broader hatred towards the West. So Israel is kind of the country that is okay for everybody to hate and still have good relationships with the United States. Also, by hating on Israel and giving their people something to hate, they can distract specifically from countries like Iran from all the problems they have internally. They can say, what about these Jews over here? So that, I, I have no idea what the number is for the U.N. resolutions. That sounds about right into the hundreds for, for, for Israel. But I, I think that's probably going to continue. And I think Israel is, is working real hard right now to make sure that those complaints don't turn legitimate. Most of the ones I read, the complaints in the U.N. about Israel, most of them are, are, are crappy,
0: Right, Some of them
1: are legit, but we don't want to do what we be, if we're Israel, we don't want to give people like legit things to point at and say, "No, no, 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 this actually is a war crime.
0: So the problem that immediately comes to mind is that if you're Israel and you're trying to toe the line and worry about the optics of the situation, worry about the optics of your war fighting and take into account world opinion. And then you look at Hamas, yeah, who doesn't give a fuck about yeah. world opinion, yep. and is busy doing whatever the fuck it wants, and its punishment is to be roundly endorsed yeah. by now a, a wide, a, 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 something like a 40% increase of support among 17 to 24-year-olds in the United States. And if you're Israel, you go, what the fuck am I courting world opinion for? I mean, what's the incentive for me to obey, to take the moral high ground when if I'm just a bad guy, I'm not held to any standard? Right. Um, I guess I'm just asking a nihilistic question that has no good plausible answer. But I mean, what, what's the what's the reason for Israel? to? What, where is the benefit to it being the good guy and trying to worry about the optics when Hamas couldn't give a shit less?
1: It's the long game. It's the same reason why you and I didn't do the same thing the Taliban and Al-Qaeda yeah. were doing it's it, it's it's that's the reason so if you're a western judeo christian based society like Israel like United States like Great Britain, et etc, then there's expectation that we don't do those things so in the long run, I think history's going to show that Hamas is a terrible organization and Israel did what they could at the time right now they have a very narrow window, much like we did after nine eleven where the public opinion that matters is largely on their side. I think the public opinion that matters is, is large. We got the endorsement of the United States, et cetera. If they manage that properly, and don't squander it, kind of like we did by going into Iraq after after nine eleven, I think they, they, they have a narrow window here where they can make something happen that could be good for them and for the Palestinians ultimately in the long run. It, it'll be to be determined what that looks like. Let's
0: talk more about world opinion because I think I I, I feel like the Israel Palestine issue is relatively simple and straightforward on the ground. I think what you and I have uncovered is how much world opinion affects the right decision from being made because you you it's 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 a nebulous electorate that gets a vote. You yeah. it, you have to deal in influence peddling to try to convince right. people why you're right and to allow you therefore to exercise a right amount of force to make the right thing happen. There are articles that have been written in the last week that I've read and I'm, I don't have hard data. I can't remember if there was hard data in them, but I know uh, that there were positions, there were uh, opinions being raised and questions being raised about TikTok's influence Mm. in the war. Yeah. That, and that, One of the reasons we are seeing such a precipitous jump in support for Hamas among the younger generation in a way we have never seen in this country and why this younger generation, its support for Hamas doesn't just register in pro-Palestinian causes, but is directly picking up Hamas slogans, even Nazi propaganda – Although not used by that term, but the freedom to say, kill the Jews, fuck the Jews from the Israel to the sea, Palestine will be free. Right. All those things, all the dog whistles um, are freely embraced by the youth because of what they say the TikTok algorithm is allowing, that the TikTok algorithm is, is prompting uh, and pushing to the front of the queue all the pro-Hamas messaging, not the pro-Israel messaging being that you and i both are acutely aware of how tiktok is a front for the chinese government yeah. and is a chinese government influence and probe campaign what is that talk about why why does china who is busy by the way suppressing the shit out of its muslim population <laughs> and that's the sound that sound you hear is of zero people in the muslim world protesting that why does china give a shit and why is China leveraging pro-Palestinian outrage on Western TikTok?
1: Yeah, this, is, this is all goes back to the concept of issue linkage. So anything that that negatively affects the United States, China is going to want to influence. So China has relationships with Israel, too. There's some tech exchanges, et cetera, right. et cetera. But at the end of the day, if they can use what's happening in Israel against the United States in the West, they're going to do it. And I, I think they're probably doing that pretty well right now. I don't think that Hamas and China are natural allies, but I think China is very opportunistic, and they're using this as a chance to, to, to go after the United States through Israel. Additionally, China is fully in bed with Iran and of course iran hates israel and would love to drop a nuke on them and i I'm, I'm convinced that they would if they ever had the opportunity so by by coming out and helping israel look bad to negatively affect the united states they're they're ma- making closer relations with iran with iran which is something they need right now with iran with russia and things like that
0: um i'm assuming you saw the video in dagestan of all the people at the airport storming the plane, I
1: did. I was terrible.
0: Um, it's interesting, right? Because the Dagestani's, and I'm basing my entire knowledge of Dagestan on Habib Nurmagomedov and the other MMA fighters that have come out of Dagestan. <laughs> so take this with the appropriate grains of salt. But it's interesting that the Dagestani's, the the famous Dagestani's, and I think most famous Dagestani's are fighters, all have been very complimentary of Vladimir Putin. Mm. which is interesting because Dagestan is overwhelmingly Muslim, Mm -hmm. and that's obviously a a population that's had its problems with Putin. Um, And when they stormed those planes in essentially a pogrom looking for Jews that they could hurt, it was the Russian National Guard that kept them away from the planes. You and I have talked about the prevalence of of Russian Jews in yeah, Israel yes. and the influence that Russia has in yes. Israel. Can we? Can you talk and tell everybody about the dynamic between Russia and Israel and how this is playing out now? Because Russia and RT and some of the Russian propaganda outlets were there touring the Hamas tunnels on the Hamas side- and have been deeply embedded in that cause. And that's a lot of cognitive dissonance because you got Putin who fucking destroyed Chechen Muslims in the 90s, right? had right? been a huge enemy of, of Islam, helped us in the GWAT purely out of anti-Muslim sentiment, right? <laughs> yet here his outlets are help, are supporting Hamas, yet his National Guard is stopping Muslim Dagestanis from dragging Jews off planes. What the fuck is going? on? How do you know what side of the bed to get up on so if you're again, a Jew in again,
1: Russia? Again, issue linkage. Of course, the 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 elephant in the room on on this one is Ukraine. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, okay, you want to you want to f around in Ukraine with us? You're going to find out in in Israel Palestine. And in terms of of Dagestan, the Russians uh, and the Dagestani's. First of all, I would need like several guesses to find Dagestan on the map. And <laughs> I'm just gonna just be upfront about it, but the russians self interest would also dictate that you don't want mobs rampaging through your one big international airport you're going to squash that shit so yeah they they did i don't think they stopped it because they were they were jews under attack i think they stopped it because people were under attack and you don't want that going on you don't want if you're a sovereign government you don't want a mob exercising violence that's your job if you're the government you maintain the violence so you're going to stomp that out I think they would have done that for any group and I'm glad they did it for these these groups that yeah. happen to be Israeli. I assume most or, or all of them were Jews and I'm glad that more people weren't hurt. I'm also glad that they arrested a whole bunch of folks yeah. apparently. So with with the with the RT and things like that again whatever they can do to make life harder for America works to their benefit and Israel has a complicated relationship with Russia. There are so many Russian Jews living in Israel. In fact, if you drive around on the highways, a lot of the signs are in Russian. So they're in are in Hebrew, wow. they're in Arabic, they're in English, and they're in Russian. Wow. There are um, that's I don't think Russian is one of their official languages, but there's a lot there's that heavy influence there. Wow. And then, so you got that going on, but you also got Israel. Are they helping Ukraine? Or are they not? But they're allies of America. So you know what? We're going to, we're going to exercise a little bit of pressure there too.
0: How optimistic are you that this is going to resolve peacefully?
1: I'm not, I'm not optimistic. We're supposed to go back with PDLI this, this may, and we're still recruiting. We're planning as if we're going to go. But Chris, this was, this was such a profound thing for me. I talked earlier about how we, we visited some of these places that got overrun and destroyed and attacked. But I was thinking about it, you know, I my oldest daughter's 19 and she could have been down there at a at a festival and got yeah. killed or kidnapped because yeah. she she wouldn't have run away. She would have fought um and, and been killed or kidnapped or both, which is something that happened. And for me, you know, we've we've been down Near Gaza. Again, I don't want to overinflate it. I was never in Gaza. We were never in any danger for Gaza. We were down there near Gaza and we were at one of the terror tunnels that the IDF had captured. And they 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 show it to groups of visitors and we're down there and we had an armed guard, etc. But what was a a big revelation for me as someone who spent so much time in the army is I wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. Even if I'd have been there with my group, we would have all been killed. Yeah. If we would have been there. And that was a huge eye opener for me. Could have been my daughter. Could have yeah. been these young men and women that I, that I go overseas with. So I'm not optimistic that we're even going to be able to go back this year. But I do think this wor- work is important because we've met so many good people that are Palestinians and so many people that are Israelis. There's got to be a solution, and you and I aren't going to be around for it. Um, our time, we're not going to be around long enough and be uh, influential enough in the positions that that make these decisions, but some of these young people might. So we all need to sit back and watch and there there's a there's a, a an article that I, I recommend our listeners read. it's it's called Give War a Chance It's by Ludfak and I've written I've written about this before for, in grad school and I think Havoc Journal's got some articles about it. sometimes you got to give war a chance and it's terrible and innocent people are going to die but sometimes you got to let people fight it out because of well well meaning, interlopers keep getting and stopping the fighting without one side feeling that it's lost it's going to go on and on and on so sometimes might be better just get it over with so this type of thing you don't lose tens of thousands of palestinians next year and the year after that you get it all over once right now and then the, the the fighting can stop and people can go on with with a political solution
0: there's been a lot of cognitive dissonance I've seen on Instagram again, which is, as we all know, is the most reliable news platform <laughs> we could ask for. Um, but especially from the veteran community where they talk about issue linkage. Yeah. Veterans that are dealing with sometimes, and I'm I don't think I'm speculating too much, but dealing with their own PTS yeah. from combat, uh, their own war weariness, um, are sometimes tacking radically in favor of Hamas because they believe that, Hey, I stand with the oppressed or are tacking towards Israel. Um, there's, but there's a, it's amazing how not uniform the veteran community is, especially yeah. since we just spent 20 years in the Middle East right. fighting terrorists. Um, but you see the disgust that some veterans have for their own military service. I've I've seen people that I've admired come up and say, Uh, This is all about American imperialism and supporting colonialism. Um, What would you offer? I think you just gave one great article, but I love other recommendations on what people can do. Sorry. My last point I want to say on veterans and the cognitive distance in the veteran community is I also feel like a lot of veterans are like me and don't know that much about the area. And are trying to look at it through the only lens we have. And if all you have is a hammer, every problem's a nail. And that's not the case here. There's a lot of history that we're just walking into now and opening our eyes to. And just because you fought in Iraq or Afghanistan does not make you a subject matter expert on Israel and Palestine. So to that end, what could you recommend that veterans that are just – becoming evangelized on this issue, read, learn, watch to understand the problem set there better?
1: That's a great question because there is so much propaganda all the way around. We have a series on Havoc Journal about Israel, Israel-Hamas war, and, and folks are welcome to to read up on that. But that is from a perspective. Right. Um, so I encourage people to, to read broadly and, and, and read what read what the leaders of these organizations are saying to their people. Read what the leaders of Hamas are saying to their people. Read what the, the leaders of Israel are saying to their people because what those folks say to us in English is very different than what they're saying in their own languages. Obviously, I'm not saying learn Arabic and Hebrew. Just read the translations. But I think that's what you really see because what what, what those Especially what Hamas is saying to their own people, I think that's not a hard choice. If you're if you're forced to make a choice between the two, read what Hamas is saying they want and read what Israel says they want and then make up your own mind. And what's also interesting is as far as the vets go, I I know a lot of people accuse me of being pro Israel. I'm not pro Israel, I'm pro-America. I think America's interests align better with Israel right now than they do with Hamas. If that changed, then I'd, I'd, I'd change my opinion as well. So if you're forcing me to choose between the state of Israel and a terrorist organization that wantonly murders people that I've met and could have been my daughters, etc., then that's not a hard choice for me to make. But again, I'm, I'm in it for what's good for America. And I think that uh, a strong, is uh, independent Israel is in our interests, at least for now. We'll see if that changes over time. So. I think a lot of people reflexively lean towards supporting people who pretend to be the victims the best. I think that, that that happens a lot. And I think people, well, maybe just because you're less powerful doesn't mean you're a good person. There's no ability, and there's no nobility in victimhood to me. And there's no um, need to support people who are cr- clearly cry bullies who provoke attacks and then say, oh, this guy hit me back. So I think that what we all can probably agree on folks who, who support Palestine folks who support Israel, people like me that support American interest is that innocent people are dying and we need to find a way to stop the dying on both sides. And sometimes that just involves letting some folks fight it out. So Chris, we'll have to, let's see how it turns out.
0: No, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I want to end with this. And I know, um, I'm taking a risk mentioning another publication with the owner (laughs) of Havoc Journal, but I get um, Barry Weiss's uh, free press newsletter, great writer. And she had something this morning that I saw that I made the calculated risk of reading when I was still waking up. So it really (laughs) uh, pinged in my head. But um, in the newsletter today, there were multiple examples that they that Barry Weiss it wasn't Barry herself, but it was one of her writers laid out of college campuses, um, and other people, uh, you know, protesting Israel. Yeah. I just want to read you this. Go and ahead. Get your reaction. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> the title of this little segment is Those Nazis Hate Jews for Totally Unrelated Reasons. At sympathy for Hamas protests, good socialists who just want jihad, love and peace, are taken aback to be flanked by outright Nazis. And they want to make it clear those Nazis are not with us. An article in Vice explains that the right-wing anti-Semites are a totally separate movement that is, quote-unquote, hijacking the progressive cause with hateful rhetoric that is obviously completely different. For example, (laughs) one leader of the white supremacist group took a mic at a rally and said, according to Vice, that Israel is, quote, a pure genocidal state, make no mistake. Sure, professors at every elite school have been signing statements saying literally the exact same thing, and sure, a New York Times writer just resigned because she needed to publicly say the same line, <laughs> but when a white supremacist says it, it hits super different and is wrong. Has the woke movement ever been more egregiously exposed than it is right now for for providing safe space and inclusivity and not doing harm to anyone than it, than this particular moment.
1: I, I think that this issue is really exposing uh, racism in a way that that I don't think a lot of Americans expected. Certainly not the American left. And I was kind of smiling when you were talking right now because this goes back to what we we're talking about at the very beginning about horseshoe theory. So those extremist Hamas and extremist white supremacists have a lot more in common with each other than they do with people like you or me or the average Palestinian, those average Israeli, average Jew. So. I you know I went to grad school at Yale. I had a great time there. Um I consider myself a conservative. Yale made me see myself a conservative the first time in my entire life. Mm. But I love Yale University and I'm very grateful for that experience. I'm not liking what I see right now in in this conversation in fact I I I read a couple of articles in the Yale Daily News. I keep up with it. It's very interesting. It's an undergrad undergrad pub, publication. Uh, but it's pretty prestigious if you're a Yale undergrad to get published, sure, et cetera. Sure, and a couple of the articles were um, were related to the Hamas attacks of October 7th, and the, the young each one of those happened to be written by a different young woman. And the young women mentioned that there were beheadings and rapes, and the which I think is obviously what happened because we have video from Hamas showing these types of things. And the editors of the YDN took that out; they edit, they they edited it out. Um, before it went to publication because, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't prove it. And then they went back in and added it back in afterwards because there was so much of an of a argument about it. And that was just t- telling to me that people are more than willing to believe that Israel deliberately targeted a hospital that killed 500 people, and they'll run that yeah. to no end. Yeah. But they can't believe that people who would murder babies and kill 1,400 might commit a rape or cut somebody's head off.
0: Right, right
1: when there's video evidence, to the contrary. So I'm worried about that. I'm worried about what's taking place on college campuses because even though I'm not Jewish, um, you know, it, it starts with one group and then it goes on and then it goes back to the the old poem, you know, and there's nobody left to, to speak for me. That's right. So I think anytime that any group is threatened, whether they're Muslim or Jewish or anything else in my own country, then I want that stopped. And right now, a lot of people are threatening a lot of Jews and Muslims, and the rest of us with their behavior, and I, I'd really like to see that stopped.
0: I also just want to underscore, to me, the hilarious thing is it took a white person to say those words, a white supremacist to say those words, for college students and, and the protesters to go, oh, well, that's wrong. <laughs> Literally, you're saying the not just the same thing, the same words, the same verbiage, but talk about issue linkage. You need to hear it through people that you have already established you hate in your mind. Right. In order to go, oh well, but we're not that. Right. Yet you can't intellectually separate your position from that one. Right. And the cognitive dissonance, again, not to overuse the phrase, but it really applies a lot in this scenario, is stunning to see that the people who, by the way, would probably be lampshades if they were in Gaza right now, right, seem to be supporting Palestine and pro and have pro Hamas rhetoric. But are not willing to acknowledge that some of their worst enemies are the ones that have been parroting this for a long
1: time, and they're merely falling in on that rhetoric. It's stunning, no? Yeah, and I I think that was a great way to do it. Um, Humor, mockery, satire is a great way to engage in this cultural discussion, just like they did there. And I also think that this is kind of the fruits of the poison tree of the critical race theory and yeah. demonizing different groups of people. I also remember a conversation I had several years ago with a grad school friend of mine who is Jewish and, um, describing, we had a, a discussion back and forth. He's, he's Caucasian like I am, but he was insisting that he wasn't white. And it was hard for me to, to understand what he was saying. I was like, what do you mean you're not white? I'm not white. I'm Jewish. Um, and that was very interesting to me, because he he's like whiteness is bad, whiteness is bad, whiteness is bad, and now I, I I'd like to have a, a conversation with now just to, to see what he what he feels about, it because the left is turning on him because of his religion. So this is a tough situation for a lot of folks, and and I hope we can come to a a, a solution, even if it's a temporary one, shortly.
0: And even I I would say even beyond. What's actually happening in Israel-Palestine, part of me wonders, and it's self-interest, if the bigger story isn't here, right? The fact that the United States is seeing such radicalization among its own citizenry against Jews, I would feel—well, I'll prove it right now—I would feel very comfortable— with my own personal safety, if I were to walk on the street right now and start yelling, kike this, kike that, there would be zero repercussions. I will get no blowback for just saying kike right now on the podcast. None. What does that say about us? Yeah. And again, I'm not for banning words. I think you should be able to say anything. But the fact of the matter is, is you are free to have a very violent advocacy in favor of Hamas with no repercussions as we are seeing with Jewish protesters that are getting killed occasionally right. beaten up right with Jewish organizations that are advising students at the university of Pennsylvania to stay in their dorm rooms and not go to their kosher cafeteria lest because there's supposed to be a pro Hamas protest that day. So we're saying that you can have any kind of violent advocacy, but you cannot peacefully just be a Jew in America in 2023. So much for this utopia of inclusivity and kindness and bullshit that we've been hearing about for the past five to seven years. So much for that taking hold. There's no question in that. I'm just on the verge of raging about it because that's. Cause, but I do wonder if that's if that is almost going to be the bigger second order effect of this. Because if the United States goes so does most of the rest of the world. Right. And I just wonder if the if seeing the iceberg that is the United States deteriorate underneath the water and get thinner and thinner and our common sense and our our support of Israel and forget Israel, our support of decency and proper human rights
1: is eroding, that to me is a very big story. That that is huge and I think that we need to stress that racism against anybody is still racism. Right, right now, the, it, there's a lot of racism directed against Jews. Next week, it might be Muslims. It might it might be Italians. I think we need to establish that if, as a country, there are, are certain limits to what we're willing to tolerate. And what I'm seeing right now, especially this this rampant hate directed against our Jewish Americans is not something we should be tolerating. We shouldn't tolerate it against Muslims. We shouldn't tolerate it against Christians. We shouldn't tolerate it against whites. We shouldn't tolerate it at all in our country. But I think right now, so many of our youth have been conditioned to the fact that it's okay to hate certain groups and certain people that, and and they know there's no consequences for it if you hate the right people. That, can we,
0: I I really know we gotta wrap this up, but I I can't let that go, because that's a huge point. It's it's okay to hate the right people. yeah. And as you and I know, because we've talked about this a bunch, I'm no fan of Donald Trump. Sure. But it does strike me as ironic that the very people who post signs saying hate has no home here, if you were to bring up Donald Trump, would see no problem hating him very openly and gregariously, fully. Um, so what I wonder... If this is if this doesn't expose wokeness and cr and the fruit of CRT entirely, I don't know what will. The fact that hate, being a human condition, is going to exist. You're either going to allow it openly, or you're going to designate certain groups in which all of your hate is going to be funneled because you yeah. are not allowed to just normally express it through verbiage or whatever. Right? Or not whatever through ver- for, through your words. Um, and we are now at a place where because wokeness is has been so enforced, people are looking for that outlet of who am I allowed to hate? Yeah. And thank God I can hate Trump. So if right. I need to curse somebody, I can curse Trump. Well, I mean, we'll see if Trump comes back into power, and I hope not. But leaving that aside, well, you are free to hate Jews. I know you don't have Trump to kick around right now, but hate Jews. You're allowed to do that right now. How fucking scary is that? And how much does that expose wokeness as really hate transference? It's not actually about kindness. It's not about inclusivity. It's about giving you permission on, on where you're allowed to transfer your hate. And that's kind of being exposed, not kind of, it is being exposed, I think, through all of this. Am I crazy?
1: Well, over the course of human history, I think we can look and we can see that if you give people something to hate, you have power over them. If you wrap that hatred and the mantle of moral justification, you can get them to do anything you want. Yeah. And that could be, that could be religion. It could be politics. It could be, it could be anything else. So I think we're seeing that right now. People want something to hate. And a lot of folks don't want to understand their accept that about the human condition. They want something to hate and you can let them hate a concept. You can let them hate whatever, but in, in critical race theory in particular or wokeness or whatever we want to describe it gives very specific things to hate. And, and Well, well it, we've heard now for five, seven years
0: that speech can be violence. Right. That so, if you use the wrong pronouns or you do this, it's, vi- it's equivalent to violence. It is a genocidal act against marginalized people, and I'm using air quotes. Right. Who the fuck is more marginalized than Jews? They have, since the, since the origination of hate crime statistics, they have tripled, quadrupled the next highest amount right. of hate crimes at least- We're now seeing here, they are being marginalized. They are the only entity of their kind in a whole region that is not like them. They couldn't, they are the definition of a marginalized people. Yeah. Yet, where's the protection for them? I mean, how about we deal with pronouns after we deal with who the fuck is allowed to murder, rape, behead, and kill Mar- a marginalized person. How about we deal with the physical acts of violence first before we get into thought policing and
1: speech policing? Am I crazy? Yeah. No, I think I think those are good points and it's it's hard to to tell and it's hard to get people to To change their mind or to focus on things that they really ought to be focused on part of the part of the problem We have in the United States Chris is there's so little for people to genuinely be concerned about yeah. young people need yeah. a mission and if we don't provide them one, they're gonna find one. There's gonna be these identity out entrepreneurs out there that are telling them, oh, you didn't this this thing happened to you or you didn't get what you wanted, it's because of this group over here. And I think right now the the far left has has cast Jews as the worst possible people. Not only are the colonizers, they're white, even though many Jews are not white. Right. Right, um, but they're they're cast as white, despite what my grad school friend said. They're cast as white. They're colonizers, and worst of all, they're successful. If Israel yeah. was getting overrun and destroyed by their neighbors and things like that, if they were getting wrecked, if they were broke, they would be. And if they were brown. Um, if they were not seen as white, then they would be part of the oppressed class. But because they're successful, because their actions, some people consider it colonization and because they're viewed as white, then they could only be oppressors. And if this in this binary between oppressors and oppressed, then you could do whatever you want to oppressors and no action take, taken by the oppressed is is too odious. And I think that's what we're seeing now with Hamas.
0: All right. You talked about young people having a mission. What about a second mission? No, I'm kidding. I'll, I'll do my ad for that. I did my ad for that up front. Um, listen, uh, thanks. I know we got off onto a political tangent because how can you not with something like this? I Roger, mean, This is one of those that just needs to be talked about openly like this, but I really appreciate the background and the clarity on the Israel-Palestine situation. Um, it's great food for thought.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Just my opinion worked worth what the listeners pay for it, which is nothing. So <laughs> hope they got out of it and I welcome uh, people want to fact check me or get in contact with me over the Havoc Journal email. Happy to have that conversation because innocent people are dying in Palestine and Israel, and it's going to be up to the rest of us to, to try to work that out. So let's let's talk and let's figure something out. Thanks, Chris.
0: And, and worth saying, Havoc Journal is not a bad place for that debate to happen. Absolutely. If we got to win... If we got to win, if if this is a battle of opinion and a battle of influence campaigns and whatever, there's an argument to be made then. And Havoc is a great place where we can platform arguments on both sides.
1: Absolutely. Cheers, brother. Okay.
0: That was our take on the Israel-Palestine issue. As Charlie said, write in. Write in. You know, um, write some articles, pro or con. Um, all arguments are welcome if they're well articulated. And there are arguments to be had. But to me, the most alarming thing is this acute rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Israel vitriol and misinformation uh, that's risen in the younger generations. And not even the younger generations, the uninformed generations. uh, People that or become evangelized, radicalized, I guess you could say, on TikTok. Um, <clears throat> so, being that it's 2023, let me go to somebody who I find to continue to be articulate on this subject. I found This, this post came out after the interview, um, which is why I didn't reference it there, but Dan Crenshaw, a representative from Texas, former Navy SEAL, um, <clears throat> wrote a very articulate Instagram post. <clears throat> Which um, again, 2023. Never thought I'd be referencing Instagram as a, uh, a trusted source, but um, but his facts are, are are absolutely, you know, on point and welcome and unfortunately necessary um, as truth tries to punch through the white noise of um, all this conversation when it comes to Israel and Palestine. Um, I'll cut to the bottom line of Crenshaw's post, which is um, that for everyone that thinks a two-state solution is the answer, which makes a ton of sense to have a two-state solution, if you're just looking at this problem in a vacuum, the problem is that Israel's already offered the Palestinians a state of their own five separate times. Um, So... One of the things he lay uh, that Dan Crenshaw lays out is that after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, following World War One, and when England, Britain took control of that area of the Middle East, <clears throat> the British had a, a commission um, that looked into the cause against uh, you know, the the reason for the conflict between Arabs and Jews. And the commission concluded that the reason for the violence was that two peoples, Jews and Arabs, wanted to govern the same land. So the Peel Commission said, hey, we should do two states, two-state solution. So the British split the land, giving 80% of the disputed territory to the Arabs and 20% to the Jews. Jews voted to accept the offer. The Arabs rejected it. Ten years later... In 1947, British asked the UN to find a new solution to the continuing tensions. So again, the UN, now a new entity, voted to create two states. Again, Jews accepted the offer. Again, the Arabs rejected it. Only this time, it was accompanied with war. Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria all declared war on Israel. Israel won which was a huge chip on all those countries' shoulders and has continued to be ever since. So, 20 years later, in 1967, Arabs, again, this time led by Egypt, joined by Syria and Jordan, again, sought to destroy the Jewish state. That was the Six-Day War, as you guys hear, 1967, since Charlie and I were fuzzy on that at first. Um... So that is when the West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza Strip, all went into Israel's hands in the wake of that war. And Israel was not sure what to do with the new territory because they hadn't planned on expansion. Again, they they just wanted to be left alone. The problem is that a few months after the war, the Arab League met in Sudan and issued its infamous three no's. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with Israel. So despite the fact that Israel wanted to either give half of their new land back to the region's Arabs, who now had begun to refer to themselves in 1967 as Palestinians, or return some of the land to Jordan, like the from the West Bank to Jordan and Gaza to Egypt in exchange for peace. Those were both preempted because of the three no's. And then the year 2000, uh, that is when Yasser Arafat and Ehud Barak met at Camp David. Barak offered Arafat a Palestinian state in all of Gaza and 94% of the West Bank with East Jerusalem as its capital, and Arafat rejected the offer. In the words of U.S. President Bill Clinton, Arafat was, quote, here 14 days and said no to everything. And then in the wake of that, Palestinians launched a bloody wave of suicide bombings that killed over 1,000 Israelis, maimed thousands more on buses, in wedding halls, and in pizza parlors. That was the fourth time a two-state solution had been rejected. And then in 2008... Prime Minister Ehud Olmert went even further than Ehud Barak had done, giving the same deal Barak had done, but including additional land. And now, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, turned the deal down. That was rejection number five. Now, in between 2000 and 2008, Israel unilaterally left Gaza, giving Palestinians complete control there. And as Crenshaw points out, instead of developing this territory for the good of its citizens, the Palestinians turned Gaza into a terrorist base from which they have fired thousands of rockets into Israel. In other words, every time Israel has offered peace and land in the Middle East, it has been rejected. And rejected, usually with war. And massive amounts of terror activity following. So, again, when Hamas's charter is to kill Jews, it's kind of hard to um, it's hard to negotiate with somebody whose existence is predicated on your death. You know, it's not a land issue, and um, it's nothing substantive. It's simply pure outright hatred. And that's a tough thing to negotiate with. It's impossible to negotiate with uh, because it's binary. And um, one subject that Charlie and I didn't get to, we talked about it briefly offline because I was kicking myself for not having raised it, was um, if 9-11 would have happened if the state of Israel didn't exist. In other words, how much does modern-day terrorism owe to the establishment of a Jewish state? And again, it's tough to know. Um, It's possible to say that certainly there's some motivation for it. But what I always find interesting when we talk about Mm anti-Semitism and the Jewish state and uh, the evils of Israel, or that comes up as a subject matter, well, the Israelis, um, you know, have a lot of blood on their hands and and you know we shouldn't back them as much as we do uh, because of look how much it damages our own self-interest and makes us a target for terrorism and all that. It's interesting who doesn't get targeted. It's interesting that the Chinese right now, right now, have the Mus- their Muslim Uyghur population in concentration camps, actively surveilling stripping them of any rights, any dignity, sometimes killing them, completely blocking out their communications with the outside world, censoring anything that mentions the Uyghurs. And yet not one, not one Muslim country boycotts China, has objected to China, has severed ties with China, and they're actively doing this right now. In the United States, you look cross-eyed at a Muslim in the United States, you know, we all we all get neurotic about, oh, are we creating terrorists with our actions? The Chinese are actively taking a massive Muslim population and putting them in camps and completely cutting them off from everything, depriving them of all rights, if not their lives. And there is not one heap from the Muslim world. What does that mean to me? It tells me that a lot of terrorism is not about supporting their fellow Muslims. It's not based on love of the people that are like them. It's based on hatred of the United States and nothing else. Hatred of Israel, nothing else. because China has committed far more atrocities against the Muslim world than Israel has. Yet Israel is the one that's so perennially targeted by many of its Muslim neighbors. The hypocrisy in the Muslim world when it comes to China is staggering. And the fact that so many useful idiots, if you don't know that term, you should. Vladimir Lenin's favorite, famous term for people in the West that would support the Soviet ideals without understanding that they were doing so. Or without understanding um, the, puppet, the puppet master strings being pulled. Um, it's stunning how many of them exist now. that are openly supporting Hamas, refusing to understand the history of the area, conflating multiple causes, wars, conflicts, histories with each other, and refusing to see how um, there is no logical rationale for many of the positions being taken now within the Muslim world against Israel. If you are there to support the Muslim community, pick a fight with China first. By far the biggest violators. And if you're if you can't even be bothered to open your mouth against China, you shouldn't even be talking about Israel. Israel, a country that, by the way, has Quotas to allow Muslims to study at their universities, to allow Arab their Arab neighbors to live in peace in Israel, should they so choose. So, um, as I say I'm not an expert on the area, but I like to think I can see enough to know right from wrong in this, and it's not incredibly complicated. And it's an important issue. And it's an important issue for how we see ourselves in this. The amount of good, well-meaning people that I see getting co-opted into pro-Hamas arguments is stunning. And I've seen some of my Afghan friends take up the mantle of, quote-unquote, the children of Gaza. Either not understanding that that's a front for Hamas fundraising or understanding it and not caring and having still some anti-Semitism that is pretty virulent. And again, if you're Afghan, you probably haven't met many Jews in Afghanistan. So there's a little bit of the unknown. Anyway, so many issues that come out of this, and we're not doing it. Um, you know, we can't cover all of it, but at least that was a good primer. Okay, on that note, um, we started out this episode talking about you know Second Mission Foundation. I'll just say, since I've been long on this outro, go visit uh, vetrep.org, 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 veterans repertory theater. Um, they are the other sponsor of this week's episode, and you can check out everything they are doing. There. I got to thank Mike Neal, our producer. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal. See you next time for another profile in Havoc.